Let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Again, we're continuing on in the Ten Commandments. And as you're turning there, let me open with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, this is your word. It gives life, gives joy, gives peace, gives hope, shows us how to live, shows us who you are. We pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to it. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be holy and pleasing and acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. And the Lord spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Amen. What's the one thing in your mind and in your heart today that if you were to lose it, if you were to be, wake up tomorrow and it were to be gone, that would lose all your significance, would drain you of all your meaning, of all your joy, of all your purpose? What's the one thing that if you didn't have it anymore, life wouldn't be worth going on? Do you have it in your head? Now the Bible says if anything that that is other than the Lord, the Bible calls it an idol. One commentator says, An idol is whatever claims the loyalty and love that belongs to God alone. Idols are dangerous. Idols are bad. But they're bad for two reasons that we want to look at here this morning. Not only are they the root of all other sins in our lives, but idols will break our hearts. Because idols cannot carry the weight of our deepest longings, of our soul's greatest desires. They're not meant to. As wonderful as they are, no created thing can bear the weight of your deepest longings. What you long for, what gives you satisfaction, what gives you peace, what gives you meaning. Idols will break your hearts. St. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine said that in his book, The Confessions, which is an autobiographical work. And in The Confessions, he really does an amazing job of penetrating beneath just that man sins. We all know we're sinners, right? We grew up in the church or we've been around the church long enough that we're sinners. As Wilson might say, sin us, right? We're sinners. But why do we sin? Augustine probes that mystery a little deeper and he says, What is it about the human heart that causes us to sin? And what Augustine came up with is the title of our message this morning. It's disordered love. Love is out of order in our hearts. That's why we do the things we do. We're not just good people that mess up every once in a while. But we're wicked people because our love is completely out of whack. Before I get to my three main points, let me use an example so you see what I mean. Quite another question. Is it good to love your career, what you do, your vocation? Maybe you don't, but it's okay to, right? Yes, it's good to love what you do. Now, is it good to love your family? Yes. Husbands, yes. You weren't quick enough to answer that. But yes, it's good to love your family, to love your wives. All of those are good things. Now, what happens when you love your career or your vocation more than you love your family? It's out of order. 
And you run the risk not only of destroying your career, but you, you run the risk of possibly even destroying your family. So idols are simply good things. They're not all bad things. They're not, we're going to look at, at uh, idolatry in the Bible, but I just want to start off by saying, be warned, because as you come to the, the Ten Commandments, you could say, well, through all the Ten Commandments, I know I struggle with all of them, but this one about the graven image, I don't have any golden statues or golden calves. I don't have a Buddha in my garden. If you have a Buddha in your garden for, just for decoration, okay, but don't bow down to it or serve it. But you say, I don't really struggle with idolatry think we all do and we need to see idolatry for what it is and how it disorders love in our life so three things i want us to look at briefly this morning what does the bible say about idolatry how do we recognize it in our lives and what do we do about it some of those will have overlap but what does the bible say about idolatry in genesis chapter one god says that he created man and woman in his image to be image bearers Man's fundamental purpose is to reflect the glory and presence of the Creator. We as human beings, essential to who we are, are imaging creatures. It's natural that we resemble somebody or something. As I'm looking out at all of you right now, I know most of you, and, and you look like your siblings or your parents or you know somebody in your family. And anytime I go to the hospital and visit a newborn, I always like to say and, and ask, who do you think the baby looks like, more like mom or dad? You know, because we all resemble. It's natural. We all resemble someone or something. And the Bible says that human beings, the question is not will we resemble something, but who or what. We will either resemble our Creator and our God, or, or we will resemble something else entirely in the creation. Now, according to the Old Testament, in the ancient Near East culture in which the children of Israel leave, lived, they had plenty of pagan idols that we don't have necessarily in our day. You can make the argument, and we'll talk about a little bit, our modern-day idols. But right off the bat, idols, as you think about them, golden calves and little statues and relics and all kinds of different things, our culture in 2012 really doesn't have much of that, even in religion. But in the ancient Near East, it was a huge problem. And so the people of God were called not to have idols because an idol was a representation, a reflection and a manifestation of the presence, power, and character of that particular God. And all of these idols were the works of human hands. They were all made. That's something that was universal. They contained the presence of this God, though it wasn't, you know, limited to that particular idol. But they represented that God. God was, this idol was made by the fashioning of human hands. And in Exodus chapter 32... When the children of Israel were waiting for Moses, a few chapters after the Ten Commandments, children of Israel were waiting for Moses to come down. And what do they say? They said, we want an idol. We want a God fashioned with human hands. We want a God who has brought us, who goes before us in Exodus 32. A God who will go before us. Now, what's the problem with that? They already had one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. They already had a God who goes before them. But they were tired of waiting. They wanted a God they could control, a God they dictated to. So they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, we want, a, we want a God, we want an idol who goes before us. He says, give me all the gold and all the jewelry. 
He takes a cast in the form of a calf. They melt it all down. So you got this golden calf, this ornate, pretty large maybe, this golden calf. And what do the people do? They bow down and they worship it and they serve it. And you know what they say? They say, behold, Israel, this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Think about that. This is the first generation, probably, who had seen untold miracles, who had seen unbelievable images. Had they have amnesia? Had they forgotten that this was the God who brought them out of the land of bondage? Maybe they had amnesia. Maybe they didn't, but they certainly had spiritual amnesia. They had lost the sight of who really was their deliverer. And when they had lost the sight of who, there was, who their deliverer was, they fashioned an idol, something they could get their hands around, so that it became not only their idol, it became their salvation. This is our God who brought us up out of bondage, who rescued us. Here he is. We bow down and we worship and we serve. Now the Lord sees all of this. He tells to Moses, go down. My people have done all this. And then he uses one adjective to describe them. You know what he calls them? He doesn't call them stubborn, though it's implied. He doesn't call them foolish, though that's implied too. He calls them stiff-necked. Now you might say, well, stiff-necked, you know, that's the same thing, right? It has a connotation, and it does. But if you understand, if you think about what stiff-necked really means, not just talking about, you know, oh, all of Israel had a really good... You know, they were pretty physically fit and they all had really good shoulders and muscles. No, think about it. Stiff-necked. What did they just build? A golden calf. How pliable, how movable is gold? It's pretty stiff. God was essentially saying, okay, you want to worship a golden calf? Well, guess what? You're starting to act like one. You are lifeless, you are dead, and you are stiff as gold. Greg Beale in his biblical theology on idolatry wrote, What you revere, you resemble, either for your ruin or for your restoration. I'm going to say that again. What you revere, you resemble, either for your ruin or for your restoration. In essence, we become what we worship. Pastor Mercer said last week, the question is not will we worship, but who and why. We become what we worship. Isaiah 6, the Lord commissions the prophet Isaiah seen in his majestic holiness and is enthroned he says who's going to go for me isaiah says here i am send me and so lord sends out isaiah and you know what he tells him to say not what we think isaiah 6 9 says this go and tell this people be ever hearing but never understanding be ever seeing but never perceiving now what is that about Isaiah 6 teaches that the root of Israel's covenant disobedience was that they were idolaters. Since we become what we worship, Israel was becoming as dead and lifeless as their idols. That was Isaiah's message, a proclamation of judgment. Listen, you are as dead as your idols. You can see, but you don't perceive. You can hear, but you don't understand. You're dead. You've become what you worship. You're nothing. They were morphing into the cold and lifeless spirit of the foreign gods they worship. Jeremiah 2 verse 5 says, Whoever follows after nothing becomes himself nothing. You follow after nothing, 
That's what you become. What are you following? Our Lord said in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And so the Bible warns. What does the Bible teach about idolatry? It warns. It's the root of all sin. Because you become what you reflect. You become what you worship. Likewise, the prohibition of the second commandment was important for Israel and for us. They were God's chosen people. They were called to be set apart. They were called to differentiate themselves from all the other nations. And we could spend all morning talking about other gods and idols we know about from history. But Israel served the true and living God. The God who created heaven and earth cannot be contained in some silly sculpture. The God, God is too big for that. The God who is enthroned above all cannot be contained by some contraption made by human hands that's moldable and changeable and manipulative. What do we do? People make idols because they want that control. They want that change. They want to be their own God. We become what we worship. Our God is too glorious and majestic for that. Our God is going before us. He has rescued us. And he lives and reigns. And idols reverse the focus, power, and life from where it truly lies. The introduction of the book of Romans affirms that idol worship is the root cause of all other sins. The heart of idolatry is exchanging the glory of the incorruptible thing for the, an image. And I'm going to read to you now from Romans. You could turn with me if you'd like. Romans chapter 1. Paul's great epistle to the Romans and laying out all his theology and orthodoxy. He says, starting in verse 22 of Romans 1, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged, listen to this, idolatry involves an exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. We already talked a little bit about this, but idolatry blurs the distinction between the creator and the creation. And once you've committed idolatry, did you notice there's not only a malfunction between the relationship between you and God, but between you and everything else. Once you've had a malfunction in your relationship with the Lord of all things, everything else is out of order. Disordered love. He gave them over to sexual immorality, to infidelity, to the degrading of ourselves. In exchange of the truth for a lie. Idols will always break your hearts because they promise peace and success and happiness and fulfillment but they never deliver. So the Bible says, beware. They're the root of all other sin. Once you've done that, you've, you've exchanged the truth for a lie. Everything else in the Ten Commandments is opened up. You have no other gods. How do you have no other gods? You don't have idols. In many ways, the second commandment is simply a commentary, an explanation of the first. How do we have no other gods? You don't have idols. But once we have another god, everything else, his name doesn't mean anything anymore, his day is Sabbath, we don't rest. Parents, adultery, murder, life, truth. It all goes out the window. What's the point? We don't need it. So how do we recognize, secondly, in our own hearts? We've already said 
In our culture, we don't have images and idols like Israel did in the ancient Near East, but we do have the same struggles. I said earlier, idols are not bad things. Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, says that they're counterfeit gods because idols are good things that have become the ultimate thing. They're all good things. Is your career good? Yes. Is your family a good thing? Yes. Sports good? Yes. Is money good? Yes. They're all good things, but they become the ultimate thing. I was an English major in college, and we had to read uh, a real interesting book. Um, Not necessarily that I'd recommend it, but it's very interesting. Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize for writing a book called The Denial of Death. And in The Denial of Death, written in the 1950s, he really indicts our secular culture because he says we've got a problem in modernity and in post-modernity as well. That we want to do away with belief in God or faith or supernatural. And yet the secular person is still wondering, does my life have any meaning? We still want purpose. We still want to know we're here for a reason. We still want joy. We still want to be loved. And where do we go for all of that once we said God is off the table? What does it matter? And so the secularist is left with a dilemma. And so Becker, who himself is agnostic, says, I understand because if people don't worship God, they're going to replace him with something else. The question is not will you worship, but who will you worship and why? And is it the truth? And can it really deliver on what it promises? Where do they go? We don't need to spend much time going through. You all know. I struggle with them same as you. We look to relationships. We look to our careers. We look to money, we look to power, we look to sex, we look to anything that will numb the pain, that will make us feel that our life is not worthless. Essentially, Tim Keller says in Counterfeit Gods, we as human beings look to idols because what we're looking for is justification. We want redemption. Israel and Exodus wanted a God who had went before them, but who also rescued them. He said, behold, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Behold, you, this is your God who will rescue you from the pain of a meaningless life. Behold, this is your God, this is your idol, who will give you significance, who will make you feel fulfilled and happy and at peace and at rest in your heart. Human beings want idols because we want to rid ourselves of all of those feelings and those desires are all good. Those, those des- the desire itself is not bad. What makes it an idol is when we turn it and make it and force it to be our functional savior. You know, we don't think of it as a savior, but functionally it is. It's, what, it's where we get our meaning. It's where we get our significance and our joy. So how do we recognize once we're there? We want to be justified. Well, it's one thing that by asking yourself the question, even though I started this sermon by doing that, it's one thing that if you ask yourself the question, you're probably not going to find it. Because if we were to all go around and give what our answer would be, say, you know, what are you living for? Probably say, God, family. And we might even have that desire. It might be true that we feel that way. But there are some other ways that we can find out and diagnose in our heart of hearts what our idols really are. As I already alluded to, as as Keller mentioned in his book, what's your nightmare scenario? What's your nightmare? What's the thing, again, that 
If it gets taken away, or they're in a scenario or a situation, life isn't worth living anymore. Is it the bad report from the doctor? Is it your health? Is it not looking like you want to look and being attractive? Is it when your 401k is completely obliterated in the stock market? What's your nightmare scenario? We all have them. You know, if you think, if it's intellect, you're going to spend your life feeling dumb. If it's body and beauty, you're going to spend your life always feeling ugly. If it's money and things, you'll never have enough. You'll never have enough. If it's power, you will feel weak and afraid and need to control others around you in order to numb the pain that you don't have any power. You know, Romans 1 is so interesting because, and it's scary in some regards, in that it essentially says the worst thing that God can do to those who aren't living for Him, but who still have desires for success and idols and feelings of justification, who want all of these things but don't want Him, the worst thing God can do is to give them what they want. There's only a few people in our culture and society who really and truly make it in the sense of the, the pinnacle of success or fame or fortune, right? Many we could name some maybe, or, and maybe a lot of them, you know, the, t- the typical punching bag, rightfully so, are celebrities, okay? They got it all. Fame, success, talent, image, relationships, whatever they want. And yet, how many times do you read in the paper or turn on the TV and see that another celebrity has committed suicide or somebody is in a drug rehab or somebody is never enough? It's never enough because these idols promise peace and they promise fulfillment and they promise joy except they destroy us in the process. They can't give it. They won't. Because you were made for one thing to do all of that and more beyond your wildest imagination. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Him alone. And so you can spend all your time and all your money and all your talents running around and seeking after all these idols. But they'll break your heart. Again, these are laws of love. God is not being cranky when He says, I'm a jealous God. He's somehow insinuating that all of a sudden He doesn't like to be compared or that there's even any competition. God's not like that. He's saying, I know you. I've made you. I know how glorious I am. I know there is nothing better for you than to be in a saving relationship with me. And so if you seek after anything else, it's going to break your heart. You can't do it. What am I living for? What, do you, what really makes you feel good? What really gives you peace? What really satisfies you? Think back to the stock market crash or recession or depression, whatever you want to call it, 2008, how many stockbrokers took their lives? number of high-profile cases, actually. Why did they do it? It's because money was no longer really money anymore. Money had become their salvation. If you're in a relationship or in a marriage and your spouse disappoints you, you want a new spouse, right? Because your spouse was supposed to be your savior, but they can't be. As good as they are, as important as that is, your spouse is never going to save you. So let me change another one. Let me leave my marriage because this just isn't working. I need a bigger house. I need a better job. You know, parents with children. It's okay if your children get seized. Now, children, work hard and study. I know every, I'm going to get in trouble. 
and I'm going to get emails. But when you make your children your idol, if they don't live up to some dream or expectation, instead of loving them as the Lord loves them and sees them and has a plan and purpose for their life, if you make your, your family into an idol, he'll break your heart. Because we're all sinners. I can spend this, I mean, we could be here till next week if I were to just tell you all about all my idols and all my struggles and all my failures. I've been there. I've done that. I've got the t-shirt. They will ruin your life. They will break your heart. What is in your heart that is functionally serving to save you? Whatever it is, other than the Lord, is an idol. It was a, it's, it's your own sense of righteousness. Look at your emotions. What are you passionate about? What drives your interests? What drives your entertainment? We learned from Romans 1, when you worship something, you serve it. You could say, okay, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Where do you spend your time? Where do you spend your money? I'm not saying this. I'm just saying what, what the Bible says. When you worship something, you serve it. You give your energy to it. You live for it. We also struggle with forgiveness and bitterness. Because once we lose our idols, or when our idols are injured, we get so bitter, we can't forgive. Because again, the idol is an ultimate thing. And when the ultimate thing has been injured, you can't forgive that. You can't let go of that. Now, the Bible that it says there is one unforgivable sin. That's rejecting the Lord. That is the ultimate thing. Something not worth letting go over. His holiness and glory and His love is so beautiful. But if you make other things your idol when it's injured, you can't forgive. You can't let go. When we love something, we worship it, we serve it, it becomes our God. And in the process, not only do we destroy the very thing we love, but it destroys us. So the Bible says... It's the root of all sin, and it'll break your heart. We recognize it by tracing our own passions and desires, our fears, our failures, our anxieties. But thirdly and lastly, what do we do about it? What do we do about it? Again, as we said, the essence of our sin is not all the bad things we do. It's the good things we do that we've turned into the ultimate thing. And so the first step in ridding our hearts of idols is not changing our behavior. Though it certainly may involve that. You may need to change your behavior. But the first step is not to simply stop or to change or to just take it and say, I'm going to just fix it. Like a good Calvinist Protestant work ethic, I'm just going to fix it. That's not the first step. The first step is what Thomas Chalmers, who is a great Scottish preacher, wrote in one of his most famous sermons entitled, The Expulsory Power of a New Affection." I've got to work on my sermon titles. That's a good one. The expulsory power of a new affection. And he says this. He says that the way to get rid of something in our hearts is not simply to just throw it away, but it's to replace it with something else. Because if all you do is throw it away, you're just going to pick up something else in the process. Your void is still there. You're still empty. You still have this feeling of nothingness. What do you do about it? You have to replace it with something else. He says this, It is not enough to understand the worthlessness of the world. One must value, rather, the worth of the things of God. It's not enough to just say the world is worthless. You also, you have to say, 
Look at the worth of Almighty God. Look at how beautiful He is. Look at how wonderful He is. Look at how glorious He is. The answer is found in Colossians 3, 3 through 4. Apostle writes this, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Who you are is not what you do. Who you are is a son of the living God because your life is hidden with Christ. The life, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. The life that I live, I no longer live by the flesh, but I live by faith in the Son of God. Your life is in Christ. Your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He goes on to say, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It's okay when you lose your eyes. It's okay. It's hard. It's tough. I don't mean to be insensitive. I don't mean to be crass or to simply say it's just easy to get rid of your idols. It's not. And again, idols are all good things. Most of them. But it's okay because your life, who you are, is not tied up in the things of this world. It's united to Christ. And when he appears again, so will you too be glorified and be perfect. You're going to be rid of all your faults. You're going to be rid of all your pain. You're going to be rid of all your fear. You're not going to worry anymore. You're not going to be struggling. You're not going to feel so weighed down by the presence of sin and the power of the things of this world anymore. Your life is with Christ. It's how a man like Horatio Spafford, who wrote that famous hymn, where the refrain goes, it is well with my soul. Many of you know the background. You know when he wrote that song? He wrote it as he was taking a voyage from America over to England. And he was a little late because back in his law practice, he had to stay back. His family went ahead of him to England. Well, there was um, a shipwreck and there was a problem. There was a sinking. All of his children were dead. Lost them all. Only his wife survived. And think about those words, it is well with my soul. How do you say it is well with my soul in the midst of that kind of tragedy? Because you know that your life and the lives of everyone else, whether it's your family or friends or whoever, it's not tied up in this world. Whether you live to be 10 or 100, it's okay. Because God's in control and he loves you and he's got a plan for your life. If you read down in Colossians, it talks about all the stuff Christians are called to put off. But it's only after they have first put on Christ are they enabled to put off anything else of all the listing in Colossians. It's only after you first put on Christ are you even have the power and the ability to put anything else off. Uh, there was a blog post a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago now, um, that really struck my heart. Uh, John Piper posted on his website about a, a couple in Pennsylvania. They're... Um, young couple, uh, about late 20s, and uh, Ian and Larissa are their name. And Ian uh, was in a car accident about maybe 7 to 10 years ago, and he's paralyzed. Can't move on his own, certainly can't work, can't walk, can't use basic necessities on his own, has to have someone with him all the time. Can't do much of anything. His wife, at the time, they were just dating and his wife writes about the experience. She talked about something that really struck me. 
is they were wondering and considering, should they get married? They'd planned to get married. They wanted to get married. But now after this accident, after he was completely paralyzed, should they still get married? And she said she came to the realization that it was right for them to get married when she realized that, you know, Ian couldn't do all the secondary things for her in the marriage. Couldn't work for her. She couldn't, you know, all her dreams of being a stay-at-home mom and, and doing all these other things. She never said, she never dreamed she'd be working all her life. Can't take her dancing. Can't go for a walk together in the evening. She said, I realized that Ian couldn't do all of those things. But those are secondary things. And I realized Ian still could do all the primary things. He can still lead me spiritually. He can still love me. He can still have faith. He can still lead our marriage. He said, and that's when I decided it was right for us to get married. That's ordered love. That's what it looks like when your life is hidden with Christ. It's still hard. It's still a struggle. But that's the glory of the gospel. That's what it empowers. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone instead of any other idols, you get this ordered love. Money becomes no more than just money. It's still important, but it's just money. Your spouse is no longer your functional savior. Your spouse is your spouse. Your career is no more than your God-given talent and career. In closing, as we move to the table... Jesus Christ has set this table before us. In light of everything we've said before about idolatry and how it can ruin us and how it discourages us and how it breaks our heart, in light of everything that we've said, consider this. An idol will say, your life for me. You're going to have to give up your deepest longings because I can't carry them, but you're going to give them up for me, the idol. But Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and he dies at the cross and he's raised again and he is living at this very moment in time. And Jesus Christ comes to you today and he says, my life for yours. I've given up my life for yours. That's an exchange worth celebrating. That's the exchange that gives us hope and peace and joy and truth and love. That's what makes the second commandment a law of love. Don't have idols because they'll destroy you. But in this meal, we celebrate where alone we find life and love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice. It's your word and your gospel which brings life and love and teaches us who you are and who we are in relationship to you. We confess, we know that idols are so dangerous and so terrible because not only do they blur the distinction between the creator and the creation, but they rob us of the joy that we have in you. And even more offensive, they rob you of the glory that is due your name. And so would you help us to identify the idols in our hearts? Would you help us to expel them, not simply getting rid of them, but replace them with Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.